Well, we come today in, to the end of Malachi, the sweet book it's been to journey through. In our final text, we receive a similar sermon to what we receive at a funeral. In that, when you come to a funeral, regardless of what the preacher might say, there is a testimony, there is a sermon that we all receive. The sermon is the idea of how will this impact the rest of my days? Knowing that my day will too one day come in which others will gather to see my body. How will the light of my coming final day enlighten and impact the remainder of my days living on this earth? That's what comes across in our final passage, our final portion of the book of Malachi here in this fourth chapter. The coming day of the Lord, the final day, this great and awesome day, how should that enlighten and impact our lives in present? This is what Israel was to deal with. How should the coming of the final day of the Lord, this great and awesome day, impact how they lived as a people? How should that also today, 2,400 years or so Later, after this book was written, how should this, the reality of the coming final day of the Lord, impact our lives? We're going to note in our text this morning four particular applications of this, four particular ways that we would say you and I ought to live in light of the coming day of the Lord. Four particular descriptions of what this ought to look like for us and was to look like for Israel. So begin with me in Verse 1, as we note, to live today in light of the approaching day of the Lord, it means being considerate first of the Lord's exhaustive judgment that will fall upon unbelievers. To live today in light of the approaching day of the Lord means being considerate of the Lord's exhaustive judgment that will fall upon unbelievers. Verse 1 from the ESV reads like this. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. The first three verses of this final chapter, this final portion, make clear the division that was made in the very first verses that we've never escaped. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. This division that's there, those that know the love of the Lord, those that know the great and awesome love of the Lord, that they they ought to look different because they abide in the love of the Lord compared to those that do not abide in the Lord. Those that are righteous and those that are wicked. How the text concludes, continuing that same theme throughout all of these verses, is that a day will come, yet future, in which that division will be made not only clear as day, but it will be one of finality. The truth was to shape their lives. It was a day of such total judgment, this day of the Lord, that it's described in verse 5 as a great and awesome day. Not awesome in the sense that you did a great job, high five. So, so kids that are in the service, would you just give your parent or someone around you, would you give them a high five? Just, there you go. Keep them awake. And if they're not awake, just give it really hard so they make sure they're awake and good to go this morning. 
I think I just condoned assault in a service. I did not mean to do that if you're an unexpecting adult. But awesome, the great and awesome day of the Lord. Not in the sense of great job, high five, but in the sense of awe-inspiring. As a, as a bomb or the, a catastrophe might be, something huge and powerful, would, we wouldn't say that's a great job. We'd say we'd be humbled, fearful. That's the picture of the great and, and awesome day of the Lord. It will be one of totality, one of judgment upon unbelievers. So who is judged in this approaching day of the Lord? It's all the arrogant, all the evildoers. That's what we said. They will be made as stubble. How exhaustive, how in-depth will the examination and judgment be for those that are not of the Lord? He says, like a burning oven, they will be made as stubble. Set ablaze so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Total judgment from top to bottom, from root to fruit. Total. Now how should this truth, the reality of this, impact us? We note that truth naturally divides. It's what it does. Truth naturally divides. So Jesus says when he comes on the scene, we see it from the very beginning, Cain and Abel, the, the truth to abide in the Lord naturally divides. Jacob and Esau naturally divides, and Jesus comes naturally divides those that will abide in him and follow after him and those that will not. In Matthew chapter 10, he speaks of this. Those that, that do not love me, those that love family more than they love me, that the Son of Man came to bring a sword, a division. There's a natural reality that what truth will do is it divides our love and our affection, it divides us from others' love and affection. And the great and awesome reality of the totality of the judgment of God that will come upon the unbeliever is that it should leave us as believers in two key, two key impacts and two key aspects. It should lead us, number one, to disarm the belief that God is not just. Do you remember in this book, we've seen Israel experience unbelievable heartache. Unbelievable heartache for taking their life and their future in their own hands. They, they took the gifts of God and they rewired them for their own purposes. And they experienced inevitably the heartache that would come. Heartache in their own lives and heartache in the land. And in that, God reminds them at the very end of this great and awesome day of the Lord. As they looked around and they looked and it seemed like people that were living in, in, in really inappropriate ways were being blessed. And people that were trying to abide in the Lord were suffering and having heartache. So a major application that this ought to do in our life today as believers in Jesus Christ is it ought to disarm that, that belief, that thought, that maybe God isn't just. That's what Israel accused the Lord of, just the passage before this. Maybe He's not really good. Maybe He's not really just. Maybe He's not really faithful. And the reminder to live in light of the coming day of the Lord is a reminder to us, listen, not to judge by our circumstances or by our eyes, but by faith in the Lord who is good and faithful and just. Because that day will come. An exhaustive judgment from root to fruit, which the wicked will be left as stubble. You and I need to hear that in our lives. Let's, let's be, we may not say it out loud, but when you and I in our lives are shaken at the base of our lives, when we experience tragedy and heartache, deep heartache in our lives, even as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, it can shake us 
to the point where our heart says, God, what is going on? This does not seem just. And to live in light of the coming day of the Lord is the reminder of disarming those thoughts of, no, 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 but I know you are just. This may not feel just, but I know you are just. The wicked doer will give an account. Secondly, how should it impact us as believers? Well, well, it ought to give us a great confidence to speak the truth with boldness in love. It ought to empower us as believers, knowing the coming day of the Lord will be poured out upon the unbeliever. It ought to lead us to speak the truth boldly, but with great, great love. This is what Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16. He tells them, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, and then what? Let all that you do be done in love. The coming day of the Lord reminds us that, listen, we can act in love, we can serve others, we can care for them, we can point them to Jesus, and we don't need to, to cower or to compromise the teaching of God's Word because He is good and He's faithful. And that all of us on our own, we are the wicked. This is what's so humbling of a text like this. Is that we all come by grace through faith in Jesus, not our resume, but as recipients of God's kindness He showers upon us. That we know the forgiveness we have in Him. We know the hope that we have in Him. So we plead with people to come and to know Jesus. And listen, if you don't know Jesus as the King of your life, if you don't know forgiveness in Christ, trust Him. Turn and trust Him. And we say that with total love for each other and care for one another because He's true and the coming day of the Lord is real. That's what it is to be living in light of the coming day of the Lord, even today. Secondly, what's it mean to be living in light of the coming day of the Lord? It means that we ought to be consoled by the Lord's eternal healing that He will bring upon believers. All things will be made right. We will be perfectly healed. Great eternal healing will come upon believers. Verses 2 and 3. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Now there's, this, there's a host of legitimate possibilities here. The question is that interpreters wrestle with is, is, is son the emphasis or is righteousness? The emphasis. So is this is the son of righteousness, the son posing as righteousness, or is the idea is the righteousness of God in the coming day will shine forth so greatly like the sun it will not be stopped. There will be nothing that will cut short the righteous shining glory of God. I lean toward the second because of the contrast between wickedness we just saw in verse one. The righteousness of God is so great that that it will not come short. It will not come short like the sun that shines beautifully and powerfully, warming. So too the righteousness of the Lord that will come and the day of the Lord will be perfect and exhaustive and comprehensive, healing the unbeliever. How so? What's it described as the the, the believer here? The believer, the healing of the Lord comes and says what? You shall go out, Israel, even though Israel's in a state of despair, they will go to a state of delight. 
even though they're at a point of limping, they will go to, what's the text say? A point of leaping. Leaping like calves from the stall. I've never seen a really old person leap. If we have any volunteers this morning, I'd love to see it for the first time. But you know what it is to be, listen, you know what it is to be around somebody that is downtrodden. That is the state of many in Israel, most Israel. As they're looking at the corruption of the priesthood, they're looking at the corruption of marriage, they're looking at all these corruptions, they're abusing the weak among them, they're taking advantage of the weak rather than stewarding them and caring for them. Their culture, their civilization is in heartache. The kingdom of Israel is in heartache. And so imagine if that was the, the complete state and, and, and you hear these words that there will be a day when we will go out like calves leaping. What joy and hope that would give us not to be stuck in our circumstances, but to be a people marked by the hope of the word of the Lord. What the scripture gives us consistently that we have in Jesus Christ is that we're so hidden in Christ, we're so one with Christ as believers that in his coming, you and I, in Jesus Christ, will take part in judgment. We'll be with him in judgment. It's, it's an amazing, I don't quite know exactly how all that's going to figure out, but we'll have some role in judgment in the end. And Corinthians picks this up. But that's what he tells them here. Verse 3, And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, as he says here to Israel. The coming day will bring great healing and great triumph. Jesus, though, is the great hero, the Lord Jesus Christ, the messenger of the covenant we saw in chapter 3. He is the great hero of the story. Even in the day of the Lord, he's the great hero. Even though the believers have some part with the Lord in triumph, Jesus is the great hero of the story. It says, on that day when I act. When you and I forget that, that the Lord is a God of action, that in the story of our lives, ask ourselves the question, ask yourself the question, do I view myself as the hero of my life? And when we do, we will experience the heartache of doing so. Because we'll take vengeance into our own hands. We'll drive the narrative of our life rather than the goodness of the way of the Lord that He has for each of our lives. Rather than abiding in the Lord, we'll write our own scripts. But we're not. We're, we're extra number 17 on the street corner. right? We're, that's us. That's the story of our life. The story. As the credits go by, we're, we're the extra in the great story of the Lord. The Lord is the hero. And what does Israel do? What's Israel experiencing right now? They're experiencing the heartache here during this time of trying to write themselves as the writers and the author and the primary hero of the story. But they're not. And when you and I in our own lives do the same, when we forget that God is a God of action, that the great and terrible, great and awesome day of the Lord will come, that He's a God of action, we will rewrite our story by our own ways. How quick are we to forget the word of the Lord and go at it first and then find ourselves also in a season of heartache saying, Lord, I did it again. Help. But God is a God of help. He is a God of hope. So live today in light of the approaching day of the Lord. Consider it of the Lord's exhaustive judgment that will fall on unbelievers to be consoled by the Lord's eternal healing He will bring upon believers. And third, clinging to the Lord's Word in both belief and practice. 
To live in light of the coming day of the Lord means to be clinging to the Lord's Word in both belief and practice. Why do we cling to the Lord's Word? Because we cling to the Lord. And the Lord has revealed Himself by His Word. And in Christ, chiefly. In verse 4, look what He says to Israel. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Despite all that has happened in Israel, there is still an assured hope. There is still an assured hope. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Remember the law of my servant Moses. And to remember isn't simply to recall, to know it for a trivia competition. But to remember is to abide. Uh, Look over to Psalm 119. Look back into Psalm 119. I don't know if you're familiar with that chapter or not. If you're newer, we spent three years in that chapter. It was like 22 weeks. It was a while. But look back over to Psalm 119 and let's... Remind ourselves of how the psalmist, this one, this lover of God, let's remind ourselves how he uses this word. He uses it, I believe, in a very similar way to what we have in verse 4, to remember the law. And as you flip there, we'll look at Psalm 119, verse 49, and we'll also read verse 55. That same little strophe, poetic paragraph. We, we say this today as well. We hear it in our own culture. Remember this. Matter of fact, in September, what do you often hear? Remember 9-11. Remember. It's not simply meant to be said academically. The idea is that well, an occurrence ought to shape your life. It ought to shape your morals, your foundation. And that becomes one of our fears of loved ones that pass. Is have I, do I remember them? Not simply are they in my mind, but have, are they shaping my life? Are they shaping me? Remember, to abide in. That's what he's saying here. Remember the law of my servant Moses. Even though Israel has experienced all this heartache, to remember the Lord. Remember the covenant promise that they've entered into by Moses. Psalm 119, verse 49. He says, I remember, Lord, your ancient laws. And, And what happens? And I find comfort in them. Comfort from remembering, abiding in the Lord's laws for Israel. Psalm 119, verse 55, a couple verses down. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and I keep your law. To remember the law of the Lord is to cling to it. That's the call that we have in Jesus Christ. Today as believers, to to remember the Lord Jesus Christ. As the Israelite was to remember the law of the Lord by which he had relationship with them. They had entered into covenant. You and I in Jesus Christ today are to remember our crucified and resurrected Savior, to fix our eyes on Jesus. This is the call that he gives to us. And just like the Israelite so quickly turned their hearts from the law of the Lord, they were given a command. Do you remember in Deuteronomy 5 that you have this command of fathers and and, and generations to pass the word on, to to ingrain it, to to nail it to their doorpost, all these different ways. Don't forget to train up the next generation. But what happened again and again in Israel? They totally forgot the law. Completely. They forgot the covenant that they had relationship with their Lord by. 
And even as believers today in Jesus Christ, we can forget the Gospel so easily. That's why in Hebrews 12, we have this command and this calling to fix our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. To fix our eyes, because so quickly we'll forget our eyes will drift be placed on the circumstances of our life or, or, or some idea of our value or worth. Listen, your value and worth, believer, is hidden in Jesus Christ. You are beautiful. You are forgiven. You are loved. You are liked. You're righteous in Jesus Christ. So fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, as it says in Hebrews 12, 2, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame the naked crucifixion, despising the shame, and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what we're to do for one another. That's what we're to do as a congregation in Christ to function as family. Family, we're to love one another enough to have hard conversations, to love and to care for one another enough to say, hey, listen, I love you. Fix your eyes on the author and perfecter of your faith. Remember your king. Remember the gospel. Ben, one of our elders, is leading a great study on, on, on Sunday mornings. It's just about finished up, right? Ben's getting close to finishing up. But in that, in that series, in that material, the idea is how has our lives, as we don't define ourselves by the gospel, what are the dangers we're tempted to define ourselves in rather than the goodness of the good news of Jesus Christ? There's just a host of those that come out in our relationships and our habits and our hobbies and our careers. Rather, we're to abide in Jesus, to fix our eyes on Jesus. And the more we do this, the more we'll, we'll love Jesus, the more we'll abide in Him. And we remember Him, we'll want to learn more about Him, to follow more about Him. And those others that are around us, we'll want them, because we love them, we'll want them to become learners and followers of Jesus. This is the call that the Lord gives us. This is the gift He gives us a purpose in life. What a joy to remember the law of my servant Moses, the Lord says to Israel, we today remember the Lord Jesus Christ. What a gift. Fourthly and finally, live today in light of the approaching day of the Lord. It looks like being confident, being confident in the Lord's power to turn hardened hearts. Be confident in the Lord's power to turn Heart and hearts. It says in verse 5 and 6, final two verses, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Israel marked by a hardening of heart, a total lack of submission in every area. He says he will send Elijah. 2 Kings chapter 2 tells us that Elijah didn't die. Which would be a great fact to bring up about yourself of like two truths and a lie. You ever played that game? Turns out I didn't. I never died. Elijah has that going for him. And the picture is before that day of the Lord, yes, this is certainly in, in component fulfilled as we've discussed already in chapter 3 by John the Baptist. This text actually is exactly quoted in that. I'll read it for you. In Luke chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, uh, the Lord comes to, to Zechariah, the father of, of John the Baptist. He says, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. 
And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John the Baptist certainly did that. He prepared the way and many came to repentance anticipating Jesus that would come right after him. The messenger preparing the way for the messenger of the covenant, the covenant that would be made in his blood as we will remember the Lord's Supper shortly. But each of the prophets, Elisha, was one that was said had the power and spirit of Elijah. I think Elisha, it seems here, Elijah, literally the one that didn't die, was taken up in a whirlwind. Elijah will come again before that day takes place. And when he comes, there will be this large turning of hearts, a tenderizing of hearts of Israel that will take place. When Jesus came, certainly there was a component of that, but he came to his own, and his own did not receive him, John 1 tells us. The book will be starting in 2020. Whenever he comes, what we're reminded of is that Israel, this people that have had such a great wealth of truth exposed to them, that for the most part, national Israel, her hearts are still hardened against the Messiah in mass. What truth has been exposed to them, and yet their hearts are hardened, and yet a day will come when their hearts will be softened. They will see the Messiah, Jesus Christ. They will worship Him. He will turn their hearts. If the Lord will do that to Israel, who do we know that He cannot change their hearts? Practical application for us as believers of living in light of this, who do we know that the Lord cannot change their hearts? Who is safe from the Lord changing their hearts toward Him? Nobody's safe. Run against the Lord all you want, but the Lord will change your heart. Nobody is safe from that. So as believers, this ought to impact how we pray. For family, for friends, for human enemies. People that have wronged us, wronged you. We should pray for them that the Lord would soften and change their hearts. No one is free from that. Oh, that we would pray that the Lord would change their hearts, that we would live in light of the coming day of the Lord, that the God can really change people's hearts, turn the hearts of the fathers towards their sons, the sons hearts towards their fathers, make them sensitive to the way of the Lord. What a gift that that should give us, what a mark that should give us in our life. And secondly, when it comes to sharing about Jesus, the good news, it should give us a sensitivity, a confidence, rather than being stuck and stuck in fear. I get anxious still in sharing the gospel. The difference perhaps between you and me is because I'm a preacher, people expect it. But I still, when I look at my own circumstances or look and I think, what will they think of me? I get anxious when it comes to talk about Jesus. But what knowing the Lord has the power to change any heart should give us a confidence to know, Lord, you could change this person's heart. I'm going to share the gospel with them. I'm going to love my neighbor well. I'm going to love that person well. And pray, God, that you do the work in the heart that I cannot do. And for some people, if we're honest, don't always want to do. But you can. No heart is safe from the turning of the Lord to Himself. In February of 1952, Jim Elliott and Pete Fleming arrived in Ecuador to begin training to reach the native Aka people. Aka was a, a word that was given to this particular group of people, which meant naked savage. They were all wild people. But Jim and these other, what would become five different missionary families, would believe that God truly had the, has the ability to change hardened hearts. 
even of people that would wear a title like that upon them. They came and they, they ultimately landed and spent time and the Lord raised them up. Jim would be married to Elizabeth. And God gave them fortune with the Quinchua people, which was a more familiar, safer tribe that, that already there had been some wave, some ground gained. They began to share the gospel with them and teach them about Jesus. And they learned the language. The missionaries learned the language of the Aka people. And eventually they were able to make contact with a man named Nakiwi. And he was their open door to get to the Aka people. And so they gave Nakiwi a message to tell them, hey, we're coming. And, they, and they, their stories of them flying around and trying to familiarize themselves. That's how they would get there. By plane, they would have a man named Nate fly them there, the Christian missionary pilot. But Nakiwi took the message to them that they would be coming, but he changed the message. Instead, he said that these men are going to come and they're going to harm you. And so when they finally landed on that day, on January 8th of 1956, Jim Elliott, Pete Fleming, Roger Udarian, Ed McCauley, and Nate Saint, the pilot, ten warriors came, and though they appeared friendly, they waited for the opportunity and they killed them by the spear. All five men were martyred that day, six men, counting Nate Saint. How tempted would be for our heart to stop there. But the belief that God can change any heart is what not just those missionary men believe, but their wives and their family believed as well. And though two of people who love these missionaries who learned about Jesus Christ, their hearts have been sensitive as well. And you can read about this in, in Elizabeth Elliot's book that she wrote a short time after this, a book entitled Through the Gates of Splendor, written in the 50s. You can watch a movie called The End of Spear that gives a rendition of the story as well. But in her book, she writes that the Achua people, this is before the gospel, came to the Achua people. And they were broken. See, the Achua people that had come to Christ, they had begun taking the gospel, going and finding trails and taking the gospel to their people. And one of the men that became a leader in the church, he was a known alcoholic, but he came to Christ and the Lord redeemed him and worked through him. And they would have these prayer meetings for the Aka people that had killed their friends. And she records one of the prayers that they would pray regularly. Listen to this. What the Achua people prayed. Oh God, you know how those Akuas killed our beloved Senor Eduardo, Senor Jamie, and Senor Pedro. Oh God, you know that it was only because they did not know you. They didn't know what a great sin it was. They didn't understand why the white men had come. Send some more messengers and give the Akuas instead of Fierce hearts, soft hearts. Stick their hearts, Lord, as with a lance. They stuck our friends, but you can stick them with your word so that they will listen and believe. God is in the business of changing hardened hearts. What a prayer. After that book would be written, Elizabeth and Nate's aunt and the man that you see in the screen, that's Steve Saint, they would move there. They'd make contact with the Aka people and they would live among them and they would continue to teach them about Jesus. And God would change many of their hearts to Christ. Their hearts were ignorant and hard against God. They had become soft and their lives had been transformed. And in the picture, three of those men were three of the ten that killed the missionaries that first came. And the man that's directly to the right of Steve that's the man that killed Steve's father, Nate. 
Steve was nine when they moved there. And this man who came to Jesus Christ ended up functionally adopting him as his father. And Steve, as he grew older, committed himself as an engineer to helping this tribe and other tribes become independent. He said that the people did not have, the Aka people did not have a word in their language for peace until they came to know Jesus Christ and the gospel of our salvation. And then they knew not only the word peace, they knew the prince of peace. True thanksgiving. To live in light of the coming day of the Lord is to believe that the Lord can change every heart and to live accordingly. That's the goodness of God. The message in the book of Malachi is that even the people of God have heart problems. And that the Lord Jesus Christ is able to tenderize any heart, to pierce any heart, to do a great work in the Lord Jesus Christ, the messenger of the covenant. That's good news, isn't it, church? That's good news. Next steps, two next steps. Number one. Of the four components to living today in light of the approaching day of the Lord, which one strikes you the most this morning? So which of these four, we might say, pierces your heart the most this morning? And why? And my request to you is would you find time to share this with a friend or a family member? Discuss through these four and which one strikes you the most. Number two, who is someone in my life that I need to be actively praying for and pursuing with the message of Christ, knowing that the Lord can turn their hearts to Him. Our call is to love people and to speak the truth lovingly but boldly. So who is somebody in your life that you can be actively praying for and pursuing with the gospel? As we come this week of Thanksgiving, we come to this table as a meal of Thanksgiving, Eucharisto, this Thanksgiving meal. And for many of you, Thanksgiving can be a time of certain mixed emotions. As you come to the table, perhaps you're far from family, unable to gather where you normally would. And for others, perhaps there's empty seats at the table that certainly this time becomes incredibly heavy for you. But the goodness that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ is that we're invited to his table. There's no application, there's no resume we take to come to the table of the Lord. The Lord invites us to his table. It's a feast of his body and his blood. Jesus would come, the eternal sinless Lamb of God. The Son would take on flesh. And He would live the sinless life we have not lived nor desired to live. He would live the righteous life. He would lay His life down on the cross. And it's in Him we have hope. We come as recipients eating and drinking. This is the joy and the good news that we have in Christ. This is the Thanksgiving meal. The Thanksgiving feast. That we come as those who have had our hearts Change. And so if you've trusted Jesus Christ, you're invited to this meal. If you're in good standing with the Lord, this is, you're invited to this meal. If you don't know Jesus, this is not a meal for you, but it's one we pray that you would come to know, that you'd surrender your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ and become a partaker of this meal with us. This is good news. This is a Thanksgiving feast. This is our identity our joy, our hope, our peace, the Lord Jesus Christ. For He did not stay in the grave. He defeated death, bodily rose again, ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. 
He makes intercession for us. And so we take this reflecting, and we take this to the point of celebration, examining our hearts. And so if you have conflict with another brother or sister in Christ, you seek reconciliation, just as the Lord Jesus Christ brought us reconciliation with God. But this is a joy, a full meal of thanksgiving and celebration. And so as our servers come forward, let me pray for us before we partake. Oh Lord, you are the giver of new life. Lord, I thank you for that little one that was crying just a moment ago. That you give us life. You take the things that are dead and you make them new. You make them alive. And so as we prepare to eat, remembering the broken body and spilt blood for us, the giving of your Son, Jesus Christ, life for us, we do so with a true spirit of thanksgiving that we know who to thank, that we know hope and we know life. We give you glory and we worship you in this time of remembrance and proclamation of your death, Jesus, until you should come again. We thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name. All God's people said together, amen.